Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 27. Today, Paul and I are delighted to be joined by Dr. Stephen Carver, one of the winners of the inaugural Doylean Honours from the ACD Society in January this year. Stephen taught literature and creative writing at the University of East Anglia and at the University of Fukui in Japan before leaving academia to work in publishing. He's the biographer of the Victorian novelist W.H. Ainsworth and his recent publications include The 19th Century Underworld, the author who outsold Dickens, the novel Shark Alley, and the unveiled anthology of new writing co-edited with Ashley Stokes. He's presently writing The Opium Eaters, High Literature and the Art of Addiction for Morton Books, and editing a new edition of Treasure Island for Wordsworth Editions. And yet, he still has time to come on the podcast and talk to us about <laughs> Professor Challenger. So Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thanks for the invitation. Hello, Stephen. And uh, first of all, congratulations on uh, winning one of these uh, inaugural Doylean honours. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I've never won anything in my life. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's an excellent essay and, and well-deserved, quite definitely. Well, thank you. And to, to start the podcast going, I, I kind of have to start almost with the obvious question is, is how did you first become interested in, in Conan Doyle's works? Ooh. <laughs> Well, I, I suspect, like most people, it was when I when I was a kid, and it's got to be Sherlock Holmes, hasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. So um, it was my my father and my aunt Lily who um, who loved telling um, ghost stories and things like that at family Christmas parties, and um, I, there was one when I was a kid, and I I, I remember them talking. I mean, very young. I mean, this was about 1970. I was about eight mm-hmm. or something like six. Seven. And for them, Sherlock Holmes was a gothic experience. I think everything for them mm-hmm. was a gothic experience. You know, with this kind of uh, Methodist family, and my parents were quite elderly, so you know, like my dad was born in 1915 and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of their discourse was quite Victorian. You know, I mean, the joke about Jack the Ripper and the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, and I kind of muddled all that up in my mind. <laughs> um, my father talking about the speckled band and i thought this sounds great i'm so going to go and read this <laughs> um and um it, it kind of blossomed from them so i'm afraid i come to you as a, a, a sherlock holmes reader who demolished most of them when, when i was a kid and uh, apart from the stuff that i've kind of returned to academically i, I can't mm. talk with much authority about many of the stories um and Challenger kind of moved on from that because of, well, dinosaurs. <laughs> you know, 
You can't, you can't go wrong. No, basically. I mean, I, my, my son is the same. My, we, the, mm. that, the article came about because of my kid bugging me, like, when are you going to write about The Lost World? And I, I kept bugging Derek, and eventually this Derek Wright at Wordsworth, and eventually mm. he kind of relented and let me loose on it. You know? mm. um, but I, I, I read The Lost World when, when I was very young, um, mm. Because it, it was just the next link in the chain from kind of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Doug McClure films and a yes. real dinosaurs <laughs> and all that stuff. And um, there was a, no way to easily see the films. And, you know, you just had to wait for something to come on the TV set schedule. So mm. you had to read it, didn't you? Um, and I'd always loved it, but I'd never really, um, I'd never really looked at the other the other stories until relatively mm. recently. And I must admit, I just sat there thinking, wow. You know why? Why are these not in print? Why are people not talking about these? Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously you guys are, but it's sort of in in my sort of former world in academia, you know, they were largely ignored, really. And mm. in fact, I heard um, Land misdescribed more than once as unreadable, mm. Mm. <laughs> which is quite definitely unfair. Yes, I think so. Mm. Yeah, mm. You, can, you can feel the serial nature of it, can't you? Mm. I think it's mm. quite pacey. But... Yeah. And and the spiritualism, it's Conan mm. Doyle's mm. spiritualism that fascinates me, um, mm. and as does the subject in general. And I'm going to write about it one day, honest. Mm. <laughs> and it fits in quite nicely with Land of Mist as well, because absolutely, mm. I, think, I think I gave a bit of a hard time in the essay you referred to, which <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come back to that in a minute. I think, yeah. yeah. We, <laughs> We um yeah so I mean let's start with the character of Challenger himself I mean I, I you you write quite um, affectionately about the character of Challenger in um, mm. in the, in the blog post and I wondered what sort of what draws you to him and what do you make of that of that personality Oh well, he's he's very big isn't he? he he reminds me of the 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 kind of old school professors that I remember <laughs> at, at university which I mean I'm sure they're still around but not the way they were in the 80s, a very interesting group of people, very sort of frightening and irascible and charming and brilliant and funny. And at the point where you got through, you know, your own terror of some of these people, you know, they took you under um, their wing. I mean, they'd be absolutely wonderful. And he, he's one of those kind of people. I must admit, I, I do like, I don't know, Rebels and Iconoclasts as well. And his attitude to... Um, to the mainstream media, as we would call it today, also um, also rather lovely, isn't it? <laughs> oh, and not suffering fools gladly, which um, my dad always said should have been the family motto. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's he's, a, he's, he's a, a, a great literary character. I mean, it's kind of a shame we've only got the five the five books, really. And then, I think you're right because he is he's. I reread the Challenger stories last week just to refresh mm. my memory of them. And the thing that really leapt off the page is how peculiar and um, wonderfully over the top Challenger is as, yes. as a character. There's a lovely exchange in um, When the World Screamed where he's, um, he, he was berating the engineer about, uh, uh, about, well, you claim to be an expert, but actually, you know, I don't trust experts and it's wonderfully over the top. Um, yeah, yeah. And the engineer is saying, "Meanwhile, it was clear to me I was dealing with a lunatic." <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I I really like that. And I I wondered. I mean, you made a connection as well in the blog post about 
um, Challenger and Conan Doyle themselves being almost quite similar personality types. Yeah, I, I wish I'd said more about that because it's it's occurred to, since um, you got in touch and I revisited this um, material. I mean, uh, the, the things that I didn't say have kind of leapt out because... Uh, <laughs> The way it always does, but I, I I think it's quite clear. It's got to be the character with whom he identifies the most. It certainly is not Sherlock Holmes. I mean, you know, he, he's on the record multiple times complaining about mm. Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I, I had a look at the Fox um, interview that he gave. When was that? Was that in 1925? Where he talks mm. about this monstrous growth. You know, I mean, he can't wait to get through the Sherlock Holmes question and get onto um, spiritualism, which at mm. this point is all he wants to. You know, he's lecturing on this and he's decided this is a worthwhile use of the remainder of his time. So he doesn't really want to talk about Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is his it's his ticket to ride, isn't it? He's got to he's got to write these things to to make a living, but it's not what he's interested in. And we do him a disservice really by forgetting the amount of you know, amazing non fiction, political work, the spiritual work which may come across as a bit mad, but is nonetheless fascinating to read. Mm. Um, and a lot of other stories that basically don't involve um, Sherlock Holmes. So, um, and it, what, what struck me was a connection I didn't make in the blog was um, Challenger at the beginning of The Lost World. I mean, the reason that he's bopping journalists on the head is he's being dismissed as a, as a fraud and a crank and... Um, no one will believe him, which is, of course, the what Conan Doyle encountered through a lot of his spiritualist um, mm. writing. Um, um, and whereas Challenger is is treated in exactly the same way, and Challenger is right. Mm. You know, <laughs> the uh, the dinosaur wing he's brought back in the photograph <laughs> are not fakes. It's you know, it's all completely real. Um, that's Challenger, the scientist. So I think we've. Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes might be um, Conan Doyle, the, the PhD, you know, the, the mm. scientific detective, isn't he? But um, Challenger re retains the scientific genius, but he's the dreamer as well, isn't he? He's mm. the one who'll... Um, I mean, you, you talked in one of your podcasts away with uh, Conan Doyle's approach to science. There they're, they're are kind of... There are, there are limits to it. So... Well, mm. So in, in, unlike Verne, you know, he's not writing the scientific romance. He's looking towards the border, what, what else might be out there. Um, yeah. This works for the spiritualist study, which, as far as he was concerned, was incredibly scientific, which you get a lot in the, the 19th century, don't you, with like William mm. Crick, Oliver Lodge and the rest of that crowd, you know, the mm. investigation of, of medium under test conditions, you know. Um, but he's 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 in the middle. I've actually got something I found in the Lost World, and I I thought, why didn't I use that in the essay? <laughs> this is the Duke of Durham. This is in the final chapter. So Challenger returns in triumph to the Queen's Hall, kind of closing the circle from the first chapter. Apparently, the age of romance was not dead, and there was common ground upon which the wildest imaginings of the novelist could meet the actual scientific investigations of the searcher for truth. Yeah. I mean, isn't that wonderful? I mean, that, that, that's kind of Doyle, isn't it? And it's also mm. Challenger, you know, Challenger, yeah. that the, the Earth is a living being, not unlike a sea anemone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yes, of course it is, and he goes off to prove it. So, <laughs> um, 
so I, I think you know when you get going back to land myths, I think I think they become one in a way. I think that the 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 step challenger has to take is to embrace Conan Doyle's you know personal spiritual beliefs. You know, at, at which point for me the novel goes completely off the rails. <laughs> um, and then of course, and um, and I think it's the same for the author because the following challenges stories kind of pull a hand to the vast basket of it also going back in time don't mm. they so yeah for challenger convert so we don't we don't have to deal with his spiritualism at all yeah it's a very odd feature that reading them again uh, that um i do wonder if he had second thoughts about converting challenger to spiritualism i think well i i wonder if Commercially, yes, but mm. but personally, no. I mean, he, mm. was, he was so absolutely sure of his. I mean, he he said, "I, I didn't. I don't believe. I know that this is true." Yeah. Um, so he, he probably didn't mind that. And if he did identify with the character, it, it makes sense to do that. But I, I think he realised that that was possibly a step too far for the fans. Mm. I was really surprised reading them again that there, there are a lot of sort of epoch-changing moments within. The, mm. the challenger stories but you never quite get the payoff to them so you know you mm. discover dinosaurs but we never really see the after effect of that and then poison belt is an amazing one in yeah. particularly having come through a pandemic mm. you, know, you get to the end which is all about yes. all yeah. this stuff about you know how is how is humanity going to cope with this amazing life-changing mm. moment and then again land of mist you have um challenger the great scientist has yeah. finally conceded that spiritualism is yeah is correct these are all sort of big moments that never quite it's, paid off, really. I, I was I was thinking about this the other day, and I, uh, in in the context of how much I love <laughs> that period in popular fiction when not everything had half a dozen sequels attached to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so. <laughs> um, yeah, he wrote The Lost World, and that was that dinosaur's job done. You know, <laughs> so, so the next one's got to be different. So, so the next one's kind of apocalyptic, and then um, on they go. But yeah, the the downside of that is you kind of think, well, actually, yeah, we should have said more. I mean, they they become the heroes all become immensely rich at the end of The Lost World as well, don't they? Because Roxton's <laughs> found um, diamonds or what of sapphires, is it something like that? <laughs> and the other thing is perhaps. I was thinking how good, oh, what's her name? Is it Fairfax? The, the woman who wrote the 1925 Lost World, Marion Fairfax, I think yeah. she wrote some of mm. the stole Sherlock Holmes films as well, um, is that she introduced the kind of the, the monster movie archetype mm. in the script in a way that Conan Doyle actually didn't. I mean, we get the, um, the pterodactyl escapes and there's... Um, there were references to guardsmen seeing it and then being <laughs> disciplined for being drunk, isn't there? Something like that. And it's last scene sort of flying away. Um, whereas what she does with it is she has a rampaging brontosaurus going through, <laughs> you know, central London and eventually kind of trashing Tower Bridge, which is the archetype for this kind of movie, isn't it? I mean, mm. like the. Um, King Kong, which you know, Willis O'Brien, who worked on The Lost World, went on to do in 33, is exactly that. Go to The Lost World and then bring the monster back for a long mm. second act climax in a, in a modern city, you know, and then go and destroy a load of modern <laughs> landmarks. Yeah, Godzilla does it. And um, 
they they Spielberg even did it in Jurassic World too, where you get tyrannosaurs in San Diego. Don't yeah. You? So um, I thought that was that was a payoff that he kind of missed, you know. And then I suppose now, if he was doing it now, he would have gone off like Michael Crichton and written loads of them. Wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> there would have been another one where they were in London Zoo and then they escaped or something like that. Well, you, you're, you almost get um, almost a lot of this stuff is almost throwaway with Doyle, and yeah. and, and it is underdeveloped because I mean my favourite sequence in in Land of Mist is is Lord John Roxton goes ghost hunting. Oh, fantastic! He goes, he goes ghost hunting in the way that he goes hunting for big game and dinosaurs. Yeah, and, and yeah. it's just, it's a wonderful episode. Yeah, it's just one mm. chapter, and it's also, that's done onto the next bit. And that to me has always been the most memorable sequence in. in yeah, the book. It's I agree. Just it's, it's a mm. good ghost story, um, and it, it's got a you know it, it goes in a very interesting direction as well, doesn't it? Because the priest mm. re-enters the haunted house and and talks to the spirit and basically mm. lays the ghost so the the, the spirit is a is a, a very tragic figure who trapped and angry and mm. scary um and they sort it out and you also get roxton taking a shot at it with his yes. revolver, <laughs> which, which of course he would um <laughs> yeah no i i like it's very episodic isn't it in a, mm. in a way i think um the other two full-length stories aren't um, and I, I think the point of view has something to do with that, really. You know, it's it's an open third person, whereas all the others are um, sort of first person. Mm. Uh, so you go full third person. You can range around a lot of different characters, and, mm. and he does. So you've got the Richet experiments in Paris, which where mm. it becomes almost a scientific treatise, doesn't mm. it? Um, the subplot about the... Um, the real medium who's persecuted and the children yeah. taken over by the fake. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, it's a weird... I mean, writing serials must do that as well, mustn't it? I mean, you know, you, you, you get that when you read Dickens. You can feel the mm. necessarily episodic nature. They're not, so they're not written as novels. They are serials. So mm. they've got to... Each bit has got a bit of its own unit of narrative. I don't think mm. that comes up. But, yeah, I felt with the, uh, the Roxton ghost hunting thing that he should have written more ghost stories but he, he, yeah. was, he was always always almost on a learning curve with the with the ghost story he never as you say never really wrestled with the ghost story he did the other you know, gothic story yeah. very well but the the ghost story he never quite quite got a handle on and and but the potential is there yeah i, I wonder um, if if uh, for somebody who you know becomes increasingly um, convinced of the truth beyond spiritualism. The ghost story becomes very silly. I, I'm not sure mm-hmm. because I mean, the 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 gothic short story sort of like showed a certain amount of commercial acumen as well, didn't mm-hmm. they? I mean, this was a, this was a genre which was mm-hmm. sort of selling at that point. I mean, he's he's writing stuff when you know Lefany was is publishing stuff. But we're still in a bit of a golden age for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So on Kipling as well, of course, you know. Um, so yeah, and we we go back to the 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 variety of Conan Doyle's abilities as a, as a writer. I mean, mm. while he's writing Land of Miss, he's writing the first volume of the histories of history of spiritualism as mm. well, isn't he? <laughs> Um, this is again with the land of the of the land of mist. It's interesting in that is you, you've got three elements almost. There's there's the scientific treatise element. There's the adventure yeah. story element, which he's always interested in, 
but also the polemicism. And yes. this, as you say, he's writing at the same time he's writing a history of, of spiritualism. Mm. So the, the polemical purpose often comes yeah, to the fore as well. Quite late on in his life. So we're, we're sort of, mm. in, um, you know, a, a lot of it has been thoroughly discredited by the point mm. um, mm. that, that, that he's writing this. So, um, yeah, I mean, The, the Land of Mist is well, it's, it's one of the few novels you will ever come across that has foot, scientific footnotes, well, factual <laughs> footnotes, at the, mm. uh, well, end notes, I think. And, mm. But anyway, uh, you know, written by Conan Doyle. I mean, and that's written in the first person, and several of them are prefaced with things. With, I, I recall a seance that such and such where we saw this, you know, and then mm. he'll list the, um, the other witnesses there because mm. for him it was, you know... Uh, the evidentiary approach involved having other people there who were hearing and seeing the same things he was, and that's how he strongly believed that, that um, a lot of this stuff was real, um, which I, we should probably talk about, and the Houdini mm. stuff, because, I mean, Land of Miss is written after he falls out with Houdini, and, you know, they don't just fall out. I mean, they actively mm. end up mm. sort of in, in open conflict across the mm. press mm. over... Mm. Um, what's her name, Marjorie Crand in the Boston media. So, um, yeah, he's, he's certainly got a bit of an axe to grind. And he's not letting it go. I mean, you know, because you know, spiritualism comes in, in waves, doesn't it? I mean, you've got the takes off like mad in the 1840s and then begins to drop off. And then the First World War, of course, revitalizes interest for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and then begins to drop off in the in the interwar period where he's writing Land of Mist. So, mm. so where did your interest in in the spiritualism aspect come from? Oh, the, oh, this is good. My mother was <laughs> one. <laughs> I, I grew up around this stuff. Um, mm. She was uh, well, actually, she was the same as Conan Doyle. She, she was a lapsed Catholic who'd um, embraced spiritualism. So. Um, oh. I can't claim to have attended seances, but I've been in the I've been in the family home when one's been going on, and my father's been wandering around in the back room muttering because he thought it was all absolute nonsense. But you know, he loved to put up with it because um, her, you know, his, his side of the family were were you know quite were were much more rational, <laughs> but my mother's were um, sort of all farm labourers descended from sort of Irish immigrants and um, I mean it was all very real to them I mean so that side of my family were very superstitious and um, so it, it was all there I mean I'm still mm. I'm very very interested in the history of spiritualism I and mean, I, I am going to write a book about the Fox sisters at, at some point mm. that's my I, something else this opium eaters thing is kind of in the way at the moment <laughs> you know, I've, I've, got, I've got to do that um, and um a few years ago, I, I got asked to write something about um, Lefanu for the Hippocampus book, what was it called, Through, Through a Glass Darkly, and mm. um, uh, I thought ev everybody's doing the obvious ones, you know, they're, they're, doing, <laughs> they're doing the ghost stories, they're doing Uncle Silas and, um, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of thing. So I'm like, let's, let's have a look at, you know, the sensation fiction, but no, I don't fancy that, quite like The Rose and the Key. Oh, let's have a look at the satire, mm. All in the Dark, which is a, a satire on spiritualism from uh, a guy who wrote and loved ghost stories. Um, and I, I was completely taken by this and kind of wanted to sort of mesh up what I remembered from being a kid 
with something a bit more academic. So I kind of plowed, in order to write this piece, I kind of jumped into the history of it and, and never really stopped because, I mean, mm. this, the stories are, ju are just so wonderful. And then, you, yeah. of course, you've got a, a sort of perfect kind of blueprint for the way any sort of mad belief, religion, ideology gets started. Only, um, you know, it's, it's, it's happened very recently and it's... Um, Included people who were very, very clever and perhaps should have known better, i.e., <laughs> Sir Arthur, because there was a real blind spot there. I mean, I, I find when um, uh, he he always seems such a likable presence in his work, and then I, I I look at you know the 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 attacks on Houdini and things like that, and think, well, this isn't his finest hour, really, is it? You know, <laughs> um, or or the fairies, you know, mm. the, the fact mm. that you know he he was so. Um, easily fooled mm. am i allowed to say that i mean mm. to, unless <laughs> we, we, have, we have listeners that are ardent spiritualists and completely believe me i mean i i love it in the same way that i love my mother's old face you know i love, I love the romance and the iconography of it but i don't believe it yeah. I think it's. I think that's why Land of Mist is so interesting in that respect because he tries to take so many different aspects of spiritualism as well and you do have the moments where you know there's now there's the missing chapter which is about a sort of negative ghost um, oh. a, very, a very evil ghost ghostly spirit and then there's there's mm. the fraud and then there's the people who are you know uh, being attacked there's the domestic abuse um, oh, God, chapter yeah, which that, is really mm. harrowing actually it's well, pretty, it's horrible yeah yeah but has a really rather uplifting ending, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, the, the spirit of the children's mother intervenes, yeah. Yeah. Which um, is something we've certainly seen a lot of in mainstream Hollywood. I mean, this is how Poltergeist 2 ends, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and saves the day, you know. That's that's a great plot device. I like that. I, said, I think I said in the, um, in the blog it reminded me of the Mysteries of London, you know, kind of mm -hmm. in a good way. That it was it was very raw and violent and um, a bit yeah. sensational, and it's a very dark section. That and he doesn't he doesn't shy away from it. Um, and you can see there's there's real anger in the in the persecution of mediums that are not deliberately faking it. I mean they may, I mean because a lot of them probably did, you know, believe what they were doing was, yeah, you know, complete. I didn't think there's an EF Benson story about this where. But it's another, it's another ghost story device. The the fake medium ends up um, contacting a real ghost. Because <laughs> um, I, I, I assume, I mean, you know, Gene would, would have been absolutely certain that all the automatic writing was, you know, coming from, you know, the etheric plane or whatever. Mm. Um, and so was, so was Conan Doyle, you know, and we'll, we'll look at it as well. Actually, this is a secondary personality kind of coming from. In you know a kind of a psychological experiment, isn't it? I mean, like sort of at the same time that Gene is is, is still practicing automatic writing, a lot of other people as well were surrealists are doing it because they want to get aligned to the unconscious. I mean, they know mm. exactly what it is. It's not a supernatural presence. Mm. Um, they're kind of turning inwards. Mm. Well, I think uh, I think a lot of that sort of interest in spiritualism, or at least well, maybe not a lot, but certainly a a good part of it, I think, is Conan Doyle being so irritated by the sort of closed-minded scientific ideas. Yeah. And, and that's what you get with, you know, Challenger's called Challenger for a reason, I suppose. Indeed, yes. Um, you know, 
and um, uh, and and the other thing I, is he obviously gets quite fixated on this. And the the other thing that struck me reading the stories again was how much sort of scientific morals play in the background of these stories, but are never quite resolved. So yeah. what was yeah. I, I was really struck by the fact that. Um, well, you mentioned it before, Land of Mist, you discover that actually the, the reason Challenger is the way he is is because of this disastrous experiment in yes. his youth where effectively he experimented on a couple of people and they died. Yeah. Um, so you have um, you have that, but also the amazing thing in When the World Screamed where why is Challenger doing what he's doing? He's doing it because he, he wants the Earth, which is now this yeah. <laughs> creature, to... Yeah to at least recognize the presence of one human and that human has to be him. And, yes. then, the, and then the last story, Dis- Disintegration yeah. Machine, you essentially have got um, Challenger <laughs> well, essentially murdering <laughs> a fellow yes. scientist who, who he feels yeah. is using science for the wrong, for the yes, wrong yes. end. A, a foreign power, or indeed any power, must, must not get hold of this technology because they don't save it for the empire, do they? <laughs> they just shut it off and uh, because, yeah, the world is not ready. But, yeah, and it, it, there's a wonderful kind of moral question mark over it because he doesn't really kill him. He just doesn't bring him back. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, technically it's not murder. It's just sort of, I don't know, permanent stasis. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and this notion that you can have your scientific pursuit uh, is is completely separate from how the science is going to be used, and I would have mm. thought that is exactly how Conan Doyle would have been brought up in his mm. university days. But actually, in Disintegration Machine, right at the end of his life, he's saying quite the opposite, which is no, there are moral consequences to these things. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, you know, Nemore, I think he's called, isn't it? Nemore is mm. was was quite prepared to sell this to an agent that was going to uh, yeah threaten everybody. But he, he's of course seen, you know industrial warfare by that point hasn't he and is anticipating an apocalypse as well so i mean he might be considered i mean rather like wells i mean he would probably see where technology and humanity were going Mm. Mm. Uh, this this being a hobby horse i i have this problem with dickens as well you know who i love um and i am a victorianist you know that's what Mm. i was for, for many years you know i got paid for it as well um but you find yourself, you know, do people not realise that there were other writers <laughs> in the 19th century? And I met many of whom gave him a good run for his money. They may mm. not have his vision or his talent. Um, and it's kind of like the historical adaptations on TV and film. It, it, there, there's a set that just rotate around. <laughs> how, how many more versions of Jane Eyre do you want? How many more Oliver Twists? Mm. Um, and so on, and you know, we we could we could be plundering the the popular culture of the nineteenth century, but in fact, it's incredibly difficult to get anyone to um, to care about it. Mm. it is, I mean, it's interesting. You should make the point there about um, <laughs> how many more adaptations of Jane Eyre. I mean, your one of your specialisms is Ainsworth, and mm. um, you know, uh, I, I'm not so familiar with Ainsworth, but I have read Rookwood. Uh, yeah. And I can imagine that would have been a hell of an adaptation. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Or Jack Shepard. I mean, imagine sort of like Todd Slaughter being Jonathan King or, or Alan Rickman. I think it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Yeah. But, yeah, very hard to get anything off the ground involving these texts. You know, they're, they're not familiar. They're not, they're not, they don't have brand recognition. 
even uh, though someone like if if you are studying the you know as we said with Conan Doyle his name is now outside the Sherlock Holmes film getting more accepted but you've got to I mean we're finding this all the time with the podcast the stuff that influenced Doyle is where mm. you start to get into these writers you're talking about this is the stuff he grew up on mm. and Indeed. which shaped yeah. him and, yeah. and your writers main read main read yeah these sort of writers are all who are forgotten or overlooked and if you're going to study major figures you have to look at what they were influenced by surely and 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 there's a whole world out there as you say to be looked at well what i find it was a long time ago now and it doesn't i don't think it's changed is these sort of things are great for your doctorate but don't really try to do anything else mm -hmm. with them you know um something up with conan Doyle, i the in the academy that his his era is sort of modernism and he's not a modernist mm -hmm. um so um you know when i when i when, when i was in in academic literature i mean I, nobody was particularly i shouldn't be so dismissive there'll be howls and protests from people oh, what about professor so's <laughs> work on jewel Verne or whatever but um you know people like hd wells i mean even even you know sassoon um you know any anyone that was still essentially a victorian realist writer let's say you know um and I'm going to be sneaky here and include the science fiction writers in that, you know, like structurally, you know, they were, they mm. were using, the, you know, the, the Victorian novel form. Um, you know, for, ma for many years, um, academic literature just really did not care about them. You know, I mean, the, 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 the century turned on, you know, it began with Conrad and mm. Kafka and <laughs> Wolf and Joyce, and this is what you study and this is what is canonized as as high literature so with um, conan doyle you get well he was the guy who wrote the sherlock holmes books mm, mm. you know um and i he came into into my professional world full of um through the work of professor victor sage who was one of the the early adapters to gothic studies who who was very interested in you know post-colonialism and imperial gothic writing and things mm. like that we started to look at um Things like the speckle band the sign of four from that mm. direction you know? so we're um <clears throat> and then of course you've got things like baskerville which is overtly gothic isn't mm. it um so we would look at it then but th those of us the gothic studies people were in a bit of a tight huddle looking at that terrible thing known as popular culture you know? <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to take seriously yeah but this is changing i mean the um i thought the the oxford gothic tales of conan doyle i mean that that made a lot of big splash when that came out didn't mm. it i mean still in when was that? that was about five, four, mm. five years ago wasn't it mm. um i mean i wanted to study comics in the 80s that's why i went to university i, I got funded to um to do an ma thesis on alan moore and frank miller mm. this Eighty-eight, something like that, and um, I got the funding. But when I started to talk to my supervisors, we basically said, "Don't do it." <laughs> Externals will hate it; they won't understand it, and um, you know, you won't do very well. And I, I ended up sort of, you know, abandoning that and going off and doing something on um, well, imperial gothic writing. Mm. <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned. I mean, Alan Moore there as well. I mean, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has probably got mm. more references to any of this stuff than anything, yeah, uh, anything else I've come across. You know, 
in, indeed. I mean, he might, I mean, he, he wants to get the, the, the entire history of sort of culture into one world, didn't he, or something. Um, I'm sure if one looked hard, I'm pretty sure Challenger is in there because there are a lot of prose pieces at, at the end of the collection. Mm, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's an almanac, which I think has absolutely everything. Yes. I'm pretty sure Challenger pops up in that. Um, I, I kind of I alluded to Watchmen in the blog as well, but I, I didn't want to give the game away. Um, I, I, we should say spoiler alert for <laughs> talking about this. The, the idea is that at the end of the Poison Belt, the, the, the world has seen something truly terrible and unites, doesn't it? Mm. Which is mm. the whole point of Watchmen. It's a wonderful Pynchon-esque conspiracy yeah, to yeah. Invent, uh, mm. the Third World War and get countries working together. And in the real world, of course, that hasn't happened at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have... A pan, the pandemic has just brought us together in, in the slightest. It's got people shouting at each other in the street about vaccines. You know, that was, it's it's a zeitgeist piece, isn't it? The poison belt. It's a very apocalyptic period. So, like 1912, 1913, I could feel what was coming, couldn't they? In fact, I yeah. think people who were as smart as Conan Doyle were probably surprised it had taken this long for. The European empires to collide, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting. You mentioned as well about the the um, how Conan Doyle cropped up into your sort of academic life around the Imperial Gothic. I wondered, you know, where where does Conan Doyle sit in that kind of pantheon of writers mm-hmm. in 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 the Gothic tradition? Do you think he's he's people recognise him much for for his Gothic work now? I th- I think the the Oxford edition was. A bit of a breakthrough. The, it's getting noticed, but probably not as much as it as it should be. I mean, the, mm. there's this kind of dissonance between what you're, what, 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 what um, uh, lots of very wonderful literary critics and scholars are working on, and, and what anybody else cares about. I mean, in, in a way, that's kind of why I'm here and not there. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Sutherland till my mm-hmm. Ainsworth book apart in the TLS, <laughs> you know, murder was committed. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're gonna if you're gonna be torn apart by anybody, John Sutherland's not a bad mm-hmm. one to get torn apart by. Really, true, true. Mm-hmm. I always really looked up to him as well. <laughs> um, but I think you kind of missed the point because I, I I was being sort of slapped on the wrist for apparently suggesting that. Dear old Ainsworth should be regarded as important as Dickens, and I wasn't doing that at all. What I was saying is, hey, look at this other guy. He's really interesting, and he was the best friend of Dickens and Thackeray. Mm-hmm. And that. So the whole of history of 19th century literature can be seen through him as a as an editor and a writer. Mm-hmm. And um, nobody's ever heard of him, and people haven't heard well. Not many, I suppose, and they don't know about him for a very interesting reason, which is he wrote books about highwaymen, and there was a, a huge moral panic, <laughs> and um, he was kind of excised from, you know, London letters, really, wasn't he? But but mm. continued to slog away, making a, a modest living as a writer for for the rest of his life. I mean, it seemed to me like a very good story about someone who, um, you know, survives by their pen. For decades, you know, mm. and it's briefly famous, and then just kind of fades away. You know, I mean, mm. it's one of those failure is much more interesting than success kind of mm. stories. And did he did he edit Fraser's magazine, Ainsworth? Did he go? Oh, to um, 
I, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't edit that. He edited Bentley's miscellany, so oh, he, right. he replaced Dickens. He was. A, he was oh, a Fraser right. area. He he was. Um, he was doing stuff for Fraser's when he wrote Rookwood. Okay. Um, so his his big things were were Bentley's, Ainsworth's magazine, and the New Monthly, which mm. he bought off Henry Coburn. Um, as you know, these this is like you said the, the kind of the literary culture that Conan Doyle would grow up with. You know, yeah. I think he said Conan Doyle sent stories to Blackwood's magazine and didn't get them published, did he? That's <laughs> yeah, right. Which means he'd be reading the, the tales of terror and all that wonderful stuff that, that mm. they were printing, yeah. Well, yeah, and I was yeah. just thinking about people like, I think Thackeray and Southey and Carlyle were all printed mm. in those. And, and he, he directly references those in this wonderful book, Through the Magic Door, about his... His, yeah. his his reading habits and the influence of writers on his work and mm. they're all in the same things that you know Hainsworth was in <laughs> and others well, yes yeah I mean well that that was such a, a, a rich period I guess to be a reader I mean it's like Raymond Williams said that for the first time there were there wasn't just one defining genius of the age there was a there was a whole generation of them you know the, the Brontes Thackeray Dickens ah mm. Israeli uh, um, mm-hmm. Of course, with um, Doyle, I've got his family are in the middle of this. Yeah, the artistic side with Richard Doyle and John Doyle, and so they're, they're they know these people. They mix with them mm. socially, and and Doyle's got these the, the family legends come down to him of these characters, and he Doyle yeah. himself told the story about Thackeray sitting young Arthur on his knee. It was actually Arthur's sister. <laughs> you know, we worked out with the dates, but nevertheless, this is you know the, these were big yeah. names, and and. Conan Doyle's proud of his family's association with all these writers and, and, and mm. that whole world of that period. Yeah, I mean, presumably this is what leads him to start writing fiction while he's still a medical student. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. A, sort of a familiarity with that world and from the inside as well as the outside. You know? I mean, mm. this was, you know... And we talked about it with with Blackwoods and so again the Edinburgh background for Doyle with Blackwoods being an Edinburgh Indeed, magazine. Yeah. That, that's he goes for it because it's an Edinburgh magazine, but also because it's it's got all this gothic stuff that he loves and that he, oh, he really wants yeah. to be. And, and Poe, of course, was was a big fan of Blackwoods. So it all comes yes. together like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. and you get I think um, a feel of Poe in some of the early um, Conan Doyle st- short stories. I mean, the Marie Celeste one, I mean, it's, you know, it's an mm. account, it almost mm. feels real, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, the way mm. that, um, you know, Poe's sort of like loose journalistic style that kind of gives you the impression that you are reading a confession or, or something mm. like that. And that's what's sort of so wonderful about I think it's something else you can learn from reading Conan Doyle is, is you can learn how to write. Yeah, absolutely, um, he's he's so <laughs> underrated as a writer. Yeah, and I mean, you know, as as a non-fic scholar and as and a storyteller, I mean, yeah. I love the storytellers who who write non-fiction are wonderful because they impose <laughs> the kind of drama, of, mm. you know, on onto onto the narrative. I mean, he's he's one of those people where you kind of think, how on earth did you find time to do all of this? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Incredible, but in the way to structure a story and things like that with Conan Doyle, it's, it's very modern, isn't it? I think this is why people can still read the home stories and get a lot out of them, is because um, it, it's not like reading a more sort of you know outdated Victorian text, it's not something mm. that you know you're required to kind of wade through, you know. Mm. Um, it and 
he 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 doesn't I don't know he doesn't waste too much time setting a scene like Thomas Hardy he doesn't mm. you know he he'll cut out superfluous material I think this is where the the professional writer I think is, fascinates me because they're they're working commercially you know they, they yeah. <laughs> um, one one can't be not that I'm against experiment or anything like that but I mean one can't be experimental if that is what is paying mm. the bills you know. Um, I, I always regard him as, as kind of part of a triumvirate of, of, of Scottish writers, all of whom Steve, came out of Walter oh, Scott, Stevenson, Buckham, yeah. and, and mm. Doyle, all fit yeah. that category to me. And, and they, they all squeeze so much into their lives as well as as, as writing this wonderful fiction. They, they, mm. you know, the, the, the achievements of John Buchan outside are just incredible. Yeah. And, and again, it's as, as you said, how do you find the time to do this? And, yeah. and, and, and in Scott, I mean, I, I assume Conan Doyle would have, would have been a Scott reader. I think oh, yes. yeah, yeah. And, mm. and, you know, there were, there were, there were several um, straight historical novels. They're never going to kind of get in the, in the, in the popular mold again, but for, for do- they are they're well worth reading in, t- in terms yeah, well, of that, I mean, this the is, writing and mm. this is what you guys are doing isn't it? I'm <laughs> sort of spreading the word <laughs> a lot of other uh, there's a lot of other material to look at you know <laughs> i was going to ask you one question Stephen, if that's Please right do, which is yeah. about the doylean honors award and oh, yeah. and just just how did you feel about receiving this, this award <laughs> out of nowhere Oh, it was fantastic! <laughs> it, it was it was lovely. It was, I um my my I don't know why, but my email goes to my wife's phone. It's something we set up ages ago for some reason. <laughs> I don't know, I think it was ill or something like that. And and just one more one morning, one Monday morning, she said, "Oh, you've got this email from Derek, something about an award." And I was like, "Oh, great! Wordsworth won an award." You thought, like, "Well, sending me love, and I'll." have a look at it and she would no it's you and I thought no 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 so and I don't know it just um, oh it absolutely made my day and I'm a grumpy old man <laughs> generally speaking you know it, um, I said the only other thing I ever I won a t-shirt from a comic called Toxic Magazine in the 70s um, which was a, a spin-off of 2000 AD and it didn't mm. turn up it got lost in the post oh. <laughs> I never got my prize. <laughs> so um, the only, um, so th- this is the only one I've got. I mean, we, I'm, I'm doing my son said we could stick it on the wall because it's very lovely. <laughs> oh, well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I mean, I, uh, you, you, you say that you don't know uh, a great deal about Conan Doyle, but you certainly have uh, enlightened us on different aspects of the people who've <laughs> oh, influenced wow. him. And, yeah. and also, I think, you know, your enthusiasm and your, um, uh, your love of Professor Challenger really comes through mm. on the blog post and, and here today. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks for, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Stephen. Well, thanks for having me and I'll continue to listen. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> well, I thought that was a wonderful chat with Stephen and so interesting to hear his wider interests and in how they relate and interweave into the the story of Conan Doyle's life and work. 
Yeah, and uh, cover plenty of ground there, and uh, our perennial favourites of, of Conan Doyle and, and, and dark science and Conan Doyle and the Gothic, but also yeah, Conan Doyle as a, as a cultural figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, moving into the wider wider sphere of his interest, and and very interesting comments on on spiritualism there. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, if you want to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you're enjoying the the podcast, please give us a rating or review on your podcaster of choice, or consider becoming a patron on Patreon. So, Paul, what have we got on the podcast next month? Coming up next, um, something you know completely different from what we've been discussing for the past few shows. Uh, it's a story called A Foreign Office Romance, uh, which is a, a, a diplomatic adventure set in the early days of the Napoleonic Wars. And in some ways, it acts as a curtain raiser for the, uh, the later Brigadier Gerard series. Yeah, very good. Great. I'm looking forward to doing that one. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.